any institution as it dies becomes more reactive. It becomes more fearful. It attempts to sustain itself. It attempts to not anger or alienate the few people it has left. And so it actually accelerates its own decline. And that's happening in the press. Chris Hedges was a war correspondent for many decades, covering conflicts in places like the former Yugoslavia, El Salvador, and Iraq during the first Gulf War, where Saddam Hussein put a bounty on his head. He was the bureau chief for the Middle East and the Balkans at the New York Times until in the early 2000s, he decided he had to leave because of his opposition to the U.S. war in Afghanistan. He's been the author of many books, including the 2002 breakout success, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. He's been publishing in independent media ever since, including with a show until recently on YouTube for RT, Russia Today. YouTube deplatformed the entire channel along with his archives after Russia invaded Ukraine. And now he's on Substack. Today we talk about why people like him are drawn to covering war, despite the enormous risks. We talk about how, as a journalist and Presbyterian minister, he always takes the side of the suffering. And we discuss what he thinks is wrong with the media today. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Chris Hedges. So, Chris, you have been a reporter for many years, many decades now. As a war correspondent, you've been in some incredibly dangerous places, El Salvador, the former Yugoslavia, the first Gulf War, to name a few. Uh, You've been put in prison. You've had death threats against you. You've been under fire. Saddam Hussein had a death order on your head, I believe. It was only $1,000. $1,000, not enough. Consulting. How is it that you've been in all these situations and not been killed? Luck. That's it. It's luck. I've had people shot and killed within a few feet of me. I mean, one learns to navigate war zones. I mean, you learn the, I can tell simply by sounds, the caliber of a weapon or a mortar. Sniper fire, of course, being the most chilling because good snipers don't miss. It's a very high-pitched kind of crack. You learn to read a, a battlefield and assess it. But in the end, that doesn't save you. My closest friend, Kurt Shork, who... I covered the war with, and we were in northern Iraq, then we were in Sarajevo, and Kosovo he was killed with another good friend of mine, Miguel Gil Moreno in Sierra Leone. You, you stay too long. I mean, you, you get very superstitious as a war correspondent. I think all of – because anybody who loses complete control in, in, in a situation of combat, you don't really have control. I, I would say I had a more heightened sense of paranoia. I remember in Sarajevo – so we were, I was in Sarajevo – We were being hit with hundreds of shells a day, constant sniper fire. I think 45 reporters had been killed by the time I got there in 95. And one day I'm down there and the Serbs have been shelling and my friend Kurt Shork, who was with Reuters, shows up. Now, he had an armored car, but he showed up in a thin-skinned car, meaning it was just a normal car that a bullet could go through. I said, Kurt, where's your armored? He said, oh, I just woke up today and I think they can't hit me. Well, I never, like, embraced that kind of lunacy. For superstitious reasons, they can't? He, he th- yeah. He believed well, that? Everybody's superstitious in war zones, but I never went to that level where I thought they couldn't hit me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's luck. And I and reporters and photographers that I worked with, primarily reporters, because photographers, y- you can't fake it. I mean, you, you not only get into combat, but you have to stand up, uh, unlike 
the rest of us who crawl into the dirt. So it's like you avoided being killed. You know, you do all the cautious things. You have some intuition about what, like what to avoid. You have a, look, a right degree of paranoia. But, but in the end, it doesn't protect you. There were all reporters who I worked with who didn't do half of what I did who got killed. We used to say that the yeah. two types of reporters who get killed in war zones are the very green, who make stupid mistakes, or the very jaded. So, and that's true. And even in, by the time I got to Bosnia, you know, that, well, that, you know, road looks like the road I went down in the Congo or wherever it was. And you become very, you lose your vigilance. Because you're, you're, when you cover combat for a long time, your circle, your perimeter of fear narrows. So, for instance, I was taken prisoner in Basra during the Shiite uprising after the first Gulf War. I was with a light, Iraqi light armor battalion, and we were, well, we were ambushed that night. We were in the university, and the rebels broke through, and and then we tried to go north to Baghdad, and we got caught in a very bad firefight. It was about 16 hours of fighting. So I crawled into a ditch, and I instinctively, because in a firefight, you can't, you spend most of your time trying to figure out what's going on, including where the firing is coming from. With automatic weapons, you very rarely see the people who are firing at you. I mean, you, part of it is because you can't stand up and have perspective. And I immediately looked up at the wall, the mud wall behind me, to see if any bullets were going into the wall, because that would, that would be how I would detect that fire was being directed towards me. And there weren't. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, you should try and be scared. What do you mean by that? Well, because you become so acclimatized to combat that you're, you're not paying attention. Because it's all about being zipped up on adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. So, Did you ever think in those situations, why am I doing this? Well, no, I knew. I mean, we're all insane. I mean, normal people wouldn't do that. That's why I'm so critical of people who go to war, but then they don't want to leave the hotel. But I think that's a perfectly rational response, but then they shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. um, so we're always battling those, and that is the majority of reporters who just want handouts, want to write whatever the embassy feeds them. But we end up not only carrying out reporting that angers whatever authority we're writing about, but there's the, all the blowback from the other reporters who are writing garbage. People go into war for different reasons. I mean, my reason was I had become good friends with a guy named Robert Cox, who was the editor of the Buenos Aires Herald during the Dirty War in Argentina, and he had published the names of the Desaparecidos on the front page of his paper until, of course, they came for him. He was is a British citizen, so the British government got him out. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be here. And for me, that was really an example of what great reporting is. Uh, and so I consciously went to El Salvador as a freelancer. I only had enough money for a one-way ticket to give a voice or to write about those who not only were being denied a voice, but were being slaughtered. I always put myself in positions where I could document suffering and... and uh, and give a voice to those who, who were being targeted, whether that was in Gaza or Sarajevo or anywhere else. I remember when I told the executive editor, I was in Cairo, I spent seven years in the Middle East, I told the executive editor of the New York Times that I wanted to go to Sarajevo. He said, well, I guess the line starts and ends with you. The jobs that I wanted, nobody else wanted. Why are you insane in that particular way? Well, when you spend as long as I did in war, then you... It's I in my book War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, I liken it, I think correctly, to an addiction. And you can't function in a world outside of war. First of all, the alienation, then the 
soldiers call it a combat high. It's real, that adrenaline. But I think even more importantly, the community. So you're back in a war zone with a community of fellow junkies who kind of get where you're at. We, it's all, it, people who cover war for a long time, it's always very difficult for them to reintegrate back into a society not at war. Not, and I remember in the second Gulf War, when Bush invaded Iraq, I had friends, uh, Michael Kelly and Elizabeth Neufer, and they all knew, even Kurt knew he shouldn't go back. You know you shouldn't go back. Hmm. Um, all three of them were killed. It's like a moth to a flame. I mean, how close can you come to death? Mm -hmm. And I consciously made a decision. I, I got sent back to, there was fighting in Gaza. I'd taken, after the war in Kosovo, I'd taken a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, mm -hmm. where I studied classics. And uh, then I got immediately sent back to Gaza, and I was at Netzarim Junction, and there was a 19-year-old Palestinian kid who was shot and killed a few feet away from me. And uh, at, they're carrying his body, you know, somebody's got an arm or a leg down a road, and I'm thinking, you know, you got to stop. You don't stay lucky forever. So, but that said, it probably took me three years to extract myself emotionally from that desire. And then what way have you been successful at kind of reintegrated into normal society? I haven't been. I don't talk to anyone in Princeton. You're, I mean, you're a recluse? Pretty much. You, you don't come out of that experience and it's not something it's not explainable i mean i'll give an example so i and russell banks the novelist and a few other people opposed the invasion of afghanistan and so russell and i got this idea don't ever try it of like getting like 50 writers to pay like i don't remember 25 or 50 bucks to put an ad in well they all wanted to sign up but they didn't really pay us much so it was me and russell writing checks put an ad in where in the new york review of books denouncing the invasion of Afghanistan. And I was teaching at Princeton. So I had a dinner with fellow faculty members. And they all bought the Kool-Aid, you know, we're going to liberate the women of Afghanistan. And none of them have been in a war zone. I said, as soon as you start using these kinds of weapons, hellfire missiles, which you can die in a hellfire missile strike and not even be hit. It, it, you can, it sucks the oxygen out of the air. I said, you don't know what you're talking about. Once you employ weapons of this magnitude, cruise missiles, 155-hour, so there's 90-millimeter tank rounds, whatever, you can't talk about human rights. And it was a, a really interesting moment because I'm trying not to descend into hysteria. And they're saying things because like— of, Because of the emotional experience of, of well, war? Well, yeah, because I'm dredging up stuff that is very real for me that's not real for them. Yeah. I remember one of the professors said, you and your writer friends are so naive. It was one of the few times I actually started hallucinating. I started seeing as if they were there scenes that I carry hundreds of violent images with me. Mm -hmm. That was the last dinner I ever had with anyone at Princeton because it was so upsetting. And how does it feel to be a person who has experienced wars in that way, multiple wars, multiple friends of yours killed, um, the horrors right there in front of your face? And to be out, often outside the mainstream criticizing this country's, America's march into war and people having this kind of response to well, you, like I, I understand you're a naive writer. I, I understand empire and how it works. I was on the outer reaches of empire most of my life. And I understand, first of all, that empire is just the external expression of white supremacy because it comes with racism towards Arabs, towards anybody of color. I understand the brutality and violence of empire, because I've seen it. So I think Americans often, especially if they haven't been abroad, are very naive about empire. I mean, it has this kind of Kipling-esque white man's burden stuff to it, liberating the women of Afghanistan. 
and and because I was gone for two decades, there's just a deep alienation that is not overcome. And I think part of it, as Baldwin writes, is that Americans confuse innocence or ignorance with innocence, which, as Baldwin writes, turns them into monsters. And you, you've always, well, actually, you have not always been on the kind of fringes of, uh, let's call it polite society or the mainstream. And you used to work for the New York Times. You left there and... Um, after stating your opposition to um, the U.S. response to 9-11. No, no, my, yeah, the call to invade Iraq. The call to invade Iraq, yeah. And since then, and I, so this would be in early 2000s, since then you've been completely independent or as close as you can get to independence. Do, where, do you, where do you prefer to be, basically? Would you rather be inside the house at somewhere like the New York Times? Are you more comfortable well, the only outside? The only way that I could function inside the house was to be in places like Sarajevo that nobody else at the New York Times wanted to report from. Mm. That's what I did. Well, that's why they hired me. I'd already covered the war in Salvador for five years before I got hired by the Times. So mm. they wanted a war correspondent. I speak Arabic. They wanted an Arabic speaker, and I did my job. But I was never going to integrate into... The New York Times, which is just a corporate structure, so, uh, but like you can't cover war forever; it'll kill you. I mean, it'll just break you down. Um, and I, after the war in, in uh, Kosovo, I realized I had to get out. I I wasn't coping well. I didn't have the emotional or perhaps even the physical resilience that I had before. Yeah, and so it took you about three years, you say, to to recover. I mean, you do the stuff, the drinking, and all that kind of stuff that people do with trauma. I mean, part of the reason I, I exercise every day religiously, I think, is to cope with that PTSD. How do you transform yourself from war reporter into columnist, show host? Well, you know, my career was never the point. It wasn't. I didn't go to El Salvador to further my career. I mean, I was a freelancer in Salvador, and the Washington Post offered me a job. And, but they said, you got to come back and cover, like, Maryland County. I said, well, I don't want to cover Maryland County. I want to cover the war in Salvador. So I turned them down. That wasn't a very good career move. Mm-hmm. I, I like war reporters. Uh, they tend to be very funny. I think, you know, the brave are often funny. They're not careerists. They're not prima donnas. Because if you can be killed, it's – it's. I mean, we've seen prima donnas mostly from TV would show up and famous story of the other – I don't know what network they were from, NBC or something. And in the basement of the Holiday Inn in Sarajevo is a bomb shelter. They never left the bomb shelter. Mm. So, yeah, the career wasn't the point. I uh, was booed off of a commencement stage for denouncing the war right. and uh, in Rockford College and um, – then lynched by the right-wing media, and then the paper issued a formal written reprimand, which said that I couldn't speak publicly about the war. Now, this is after seven years in the Middle East, mm-hmm. you know, months of my life in Iraq. I knew precisely the fiasco it was going to be, as I think every Arabist did, and I wasn't going to stay at the paper with that. But I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was looking for a job as a high school teacher. I was I used to be a track, or ran track, and um, I was going to teach English and coach track, which I would not have been unhappy doing. So how did you end up? Because uh, I wrote a book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Uh-huh. Why did you write that book? That's not an experience I'd ever want to go through again. Writing the book? Yeah. Why not? Well, because there were days I couldn't even write. I just sat and wept. Hmm. It was a examination of the culture of war. It's not a... It's not. A, in fact, I don't like... It's why I've avoided writing... Uh, autobiography because I've read them and it's really just a celebration of me, um, how brave I am and I did this and that. And mm-hmm. I decided that if in that book I would only bring myself into the book to 
show a moral failing. Uh, but I wrote about the culture war, what it does to individuals, what it does to societies, what it does to nations, and it was really hard. It was not cathartic. Even now, it's very hard for me to pick up and read passages of it. It was published by a small publisher. It had this strange title, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Nobody thought it would sell. I didn't think it would sell. But I, I kind of wanted it. You know, I wanted to put it down for people who haven't been to war and don't understand the culture of war. Um, but it exploded, just took off. Hundreds of thousands of copies were sold. So It's quoted in the Hurt Locker, right? The, the, the beginning the, of the Hurt Locker. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been taught at West Point as well. So that made me attractive to big publishers who just have dollar signs in their eyes. And they wanted another book on war, which I wouldn't do because I didn't want to dilute what I'd already done. And I didn't want to be typecast that I would spend the rest of my life writing on war. Hmm. But it was easy to get a contract. So, yeah. so that sort of kicked off a different phase of your life. And today and for recent years, you've been writing about a range of things like you write about um, – class politics a lot. You write about the, the necessity for organizations and unions to strike. Uh, you've written recently uh, in the wake of Queen Elizabeth's death about how the time has passed to have a monarchy. Well, you know, you're you, from New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand. Zealand. You must yeah, have loved that. I'm a, we're a queen-loving nation. <laughs> 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 you know what? I, I was thinking uh, before, you, before you wrote that piece that uh, isn't the royal family just a bunch of landlords like, who yeah, eventually got large enough uh, wealth to well, build and, armies? And, and criminals. And um, I've been very careful not to share my uh, political opinions on this, on this show. But you, you write about like, a range of things and with passion and with a depth of articulation and intelligence. And I'm just wondering, like, how, you, how do you actually decide what you're going to write about? Like, what, are the, what are the themes that uh, animate you? Well, first of all, I've written 14 books. Yeah. And I report those books. And I like being a reporter. I like going out. It shatters my assumptions. And no matter – I wrote a book on the Christian right, for instance. Yeah. Uh, American a, Fascism. Yeah, which did also really well. American Fascist, the Christian right in the war in America. Well, I graduated from seminary. My father was right. a minister. My mother was a seminary graduate. You're a, a minister yourself, right? I, I that, am. That's I what that means? I don't make that public, but I am. You don't make it public? It's no. on Wikipedia. It's yeah, well, I don't write Wikipedia. Oh, is that, I thought that was you. Sorry. No, <laughs> I've never written a word on Wikipedia. I went in there with all the prejudices of liberal or left-wing Christianity, and they they were shattered. I came away kind of heartbroken for a lot of the people who embrace. I, th I think it's a dangerous and a fascist movement, but I think these megachurch pastors prey on this despair. And if you hear these stories, and the first chapter is called Despair, you, you'd have to be heartless. Sexual abuse, evictions, prolonged underemployment, unemployment alcoholism, opioid, all that kind of stuff. So I like reporting, and I've spent a lot of time, and I, and I don't report. I, I'm in negotiations with Simon Schuster now and Bob Shear, the great former editor of Ramparts who ran Truthdig, and then the publisher tried to fire him, and then I organized a strike. And now he runs Post, like basically from a Social Security check. Bob kept saying, you got to do the new version of C. Wright Mills, the power elite. And I told this to my editor at Simon Schuster. He goes, oh, we don't want you to write about rich people. You hate them so much. We don't really. <laughs> so that experience of being out um, with the, I wrote a book with the great cartoonist Joe Sacco, 50 pages of it are illustrated, was modeled on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, roughly, by James Agee and Walker Evans. So 
I mean, we rode out of the poorest pockets of the country. So it was two years. We were in Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in America, Pine Ridge, South Dakota, uh, where the average life expectancy is 48 for male. That's the lowest in the Western Hemisphere outside wow. of Haiti. The produce fields in Florida were people – we were interviewing people who were literally chained at night in a truck – uh, and they were told that if they reported it to the authorities, their families in Honduras would be killed. So I have a lot of contact with and I teach in a prison and I've taught long enough that I have a close relationship with my students and their families. So I'm not sitting around Princeton wondering what, a, you know, the oppressed or the underclass is like. And that feeds into my anger um, as well as what I write about. Uh, and then I think also the fact that I come out, although I was a scholarship student, I went to boarding school when I was 10, which don't, no parent should ever send their child to boarding school at 10. But hmm. I w And I went to these schools, you know, very exclusive schools, and I worked for the New York Times. So I also know the power elite. I know what, what it's like behind when the, when the doors are closed. So you're a Presbyterian minister. You said you, you don't talk about it publicly. It's out there on the internet. I've seen it. In fact... I think you must talk about it a little bit because in your book, Our Class, which is about uh, the prison system, there's a quote. I entered into the formal embrace of the church, but in my own mind and in the mind of my father, who died in 1995, I had been ordained long ago. I was possessed by a vision, a call to tell the truth, which is different from reporting the news, and to stand with those who suffered from Central America to Gaza to Iraq to Sarajevo to the United States' vast archipelago of prisons. So is this an animating force for you to – and is, is journalism and is, is like about siding with those who suffer? Yeah. Great journalism. Hmm. Great journalism exists to give a voice to people who the rest of society are attempting. Why did you choose to do it through journalism? You could have done it through the Because I'm a writer. Because I wrote, I mean, since I was a kid. And I actually went to divinity school because I couldn't cope with the idea of objectivity and neutrality. That, that I'm not neutral about suffering. I'm not neutral about injustice. And my father had been an activist. He was a World War II vet, but he was, was in North Africa in World War II, very involved in the anti-war movement, um, civil rights movement, and the gay rights movement. His, my uncle, my, his youngest brother was gay. And um, my father paid for it. And I admired my dad a lot. And so, but I was a writer. And then when I went before the committee, you're approved for ordination in the Presbyterian Church before you go to divinity school so you don't waste three years. And they call you before the committee and they ask you what your call is, which is like where are you going to go work? So you're supposed to say, well, I'm going to be a pastor at the Newton Presbyterian. And I said, well, I'm going to go to El Salvador and cover the war as a freelance reporter. My dad's outside. He's been a parish minister for 40 years. And uh, there's a long silence and the head of the committee said, we don't ordain journalists. And I walked out. So I came that close. And why, would, why would they not do that? I don't know. And, uh, the inner workings of institutional human beings. Um, and my dad turned to me and he said, you're ordained to write. So I think the other thing about being in war zones is you're, you're pretty in touch with mortality. I mean, a lot of people I care the most about are dead. So you know we're not going to be here forever. Injustice will outlive us. You fight as long, as hard as you can, and then you hope that somebody else picks up that fight. And I think that's right. I think that the, I once asked the great radical priest, uh, Daniel Berrigan, who baptized my youngest daughter, how he defined faith. And he said the belief that the good draws to it the good. He said the Buddhists call it karma, but we don't know where it goes. But I've seen it. 
So I covered, as I said, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night with Václav Havel. And um, I was in Venceslav Square. Uh, half a million Czechs are there. And uh, this great Czech singer, Marta Kubasheva, comes out on the balcony. Well, she had sung a prayer for Marta, which was the anthem of defiance in 1968 when the Soviets rolled in to overthrow Dubček and install a pro-Soviet regime. Once Dubček was overthrown, her entire recording stock was destroyed. She was banned from the airwaves. She had worked uh, as on an assembly line at a toy factory. That's 1968. It's now 1989. She walked out and began to sing a prayer for Marta, and every Czech in that crowd knew every word. That's the power of the good drawing to it, the good. So it's real, I think. How do you feel about who might pick up the baton from you once you're done with your writing? Or Well, the, they're the invisible witnesses. I mean, I, I don't think you can teach morality. I think you show it. So I don't know. But the, I think that when you are willing to stand up at the cost of your career, maybe even your own life, Graham Greene writes a lot about this, that there, there's someone somewhere. And you appear to have more respect for one of those groups than the other. No, I have a pretty dark view of human nature. I mean, you know, the, the powerless can become as capricious and brutal as the powerful once they have power. I mean, when I covered the war in Kosovo, I spent, while the Serbs were carrying out all sorts of ethnic cleansing and massacres, I reported uh, on uh, the plight of Kosovo Albanians. But as soon as the Serbs withdrew, I instantly started reporting on uh, groups that were attacking ethnic Serbs. I mean, my job is, you know, power shifts instantly, and I don't choose sides in that sense. I, I stand with whatever side that is being crushed. So I, I think that in that sense, a, a good writer or a good journalist is kind of an internal heretic, always in opposition to power, no matter where that center of power lies. Do you feel there's enough of that in today's journalism? No, no journalism. Why is there not? Well, several reasons. It's been corporatized. So the electronic media is just a joke. I don't own a TV. I don't waste my time. What do you mean by electronic media? Cable, news, CNN, mm. MSNBC, mm. Fox. It's just burlesque. The print media is atrophied for many reasons, including commercial reasons. I mean, all the big city papers are gone. But you still had severe constraints. I was friends with Sidney Shanberg. For, you remember the movie The Killing Fields? And, Sydney used to say, well, and he worked at the New York Times till they pushed him out. And um, he said, well, we may not make things better, but we stop things from getting worse. I thought that was a pretty good definition of what commercial mainstream media did. Mm. So you have the physical destruction of major city newspapers, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Boston. They're, those papers, and I remember when I began, they were robust. And I mean, they even had their own foreign pages and foreign correspondence, all of those papers. Yeah. So you have that, and you just look at the decline in newsrooms of, of numbers. So as any, and I also come out of the church, so and which is also dying. Any institution, as it dies, becomes more reactive. It becomes more fearful. It attempts to sustain itself. It attempts to not anger or alienate the few people it has left. And so it actually accelerates its own decline. And that's happening in the press. I mean, I think approval ratings are... People who have confidence in the press, it's about as low as Congress. What do you think are the main flaws? Like, what are the like? What are some examples of the ways in which the press are failing us? Well, it, it won't confront corporate power, which is the big issue. It won't acknowledge or investigate the corporate coup d'état in slow motion that's taken place. 
you cannot vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs. You can't, no matter who's in office. You can't challenge the war industry. And they're never discussed. How do you think this is playing out with regards to Ukraine at the moment? I mean, it was completely predictable. I'm defending what Putin did. It was a war crime. But it was predictable. We all knew. Uh, even uh, Burns, who was through WikiLeaks, we have a, a leak of his memo saying, don't go into Ukraine. It's going to provoke Russia. Who's Burns? He was, uh, he was the, uh, I think, the ambassador in Moscow. And then you have... The expansion of NATO. I was in Eastern Europe in 89, covering the revolutions. NATO should have been dismantled. It was created in 1949 to essentially stop Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe. Everybody was talking about the peace dividend, uh, promises to Gorbachev that from Genscher and James Baker and others that uh, NATO would not be expanded beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Well, they saw that the Russian Federation was broken and they uh, there's billions to be made in the arms market uh, so they you know foolishly pushed NATO up to Russia's borders and Ukraine after 2014 became a de facto NATO country so Putin was baited clearly I mean that 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 it's still a war crime I'm under post Nuremberg laws and a preemptive war is a criminal war of aggression as was our war in Iraq I mean I find the folly of us running around to chastising Putin and then ignoring what we did in Iraq, kind of. So this is this is an unpopular position you're stating here. In fact, it, like you'd be burned at the stake on social media I'm and various on, other well, places. I'm already on a death list with uh, Roger Waters and Glenn Greenwald and a few others somebody put out on you know, some Ukrainian website. It's a very difficult position to hold at the moment in the current culture. Why do you have the confidence to hold that position? Well, you have to care what people think. I don't. I don't give a rat's ass what they think. I don't care. And I think that comes out of covering war. It does not important to me. It's important to me what people I respect, like Cornell West, think. But so often, what we're writing is butts up against the dominant narrative that I've, I guess I've become used to. Remember, I covered Gaza, I covered the Middle East, APAC. I was a prime target. Uh, after the Dayton Peace Accords, I was writing that all the warlords were still in power. In fact, I got leaked this famous document that only four people had that was done by the OSCE that said that the whole idea that elections can be held is a joke, that, that all of the killers are still running uh, all of these towns in Bosnia. And boy, the Clinton administration and Sandy Berger, they came after me, Dick Holbrook. And so I'm used to that kind of opposition. I mean, I was in northern Iraq after the Iraqi withdrawal. I was with the New York Times. We were, I was writing about execution sites. I was watching videotapes of mass executions. I was with the Kurds when they were unearthing mass graves, including one that had 1,500 people. And Saddam Hussein put a price on my head and all the other journalists who were there. They killed a friend of mine. So I, I don't, you know, I, that's kind of the world I come out of. So what someone says about you on Twitter doesn't matter to me. I'm not on Twitter. Twitter. I don't much. waste my time on Twitter. Someone else runs my Twitter. I, can, I can't literally, I can, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on any of that Do you stuff. see, despite not being on those platforms, do you see any effect of social media on this media environment that we're operating in now? It drives it. And, uh, you know, I don't respond to, because then they determine the narrative. So when you're attacked and then you go back and respond, there's only so much time and energy I have. Do you think social media has helped us understand complicated situations like no, Ukraine it's more? dumbed or? us down to about the level of a sixth grader. How can that be? I mean, surely it gives us access to more voices and more empathy with people from around well, the world. Sure, and sound bites. You can't understand the Middle East in a sound bite. You can't even understand the Middle East from an article in the New York Times. 
you have to have historical background. You have to understand Sykes-Picot. You have to understand the 1948 war. You know, you can't. It's, it's kind of world without context. Do you get the sense that people are relying on social media without properly consulting more authoritative sources or sort of more informed sources? Well, they don't, people don't read anymore. I mean, that's, I know. So How do you know that? Well, because I teach. <laughs> so, and when they do read, their attention spans are so fractured. They have a hard time focusing on dense material. And so, so what sort of, how does that make you feel about the state of the media ecosystem? Depressed. Hmm. It's interesting when talking to you because you're a pretty cheerful guy. At least you're, you're a good conversation. You're a nice guy. And yet you've got a lot of, um, you have a pessimistic view, it seems, of the state of the world, of the state of human nature, of the state of the media. How do I square those things? Well, I think it's because it's I, I come out of the real world. I kind of see it. So in a way, you're not surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm not disillusioned. I know they always get you in the end. Uh, and so my job is to make them as uncomfortable as possible for as long as possible. Given that you are operating as an independent, you're outside the mainstream, what do you make of the current state of independent media? Well, the problem with independent media is funding. And then you get sites that start out as independent, and then they get bought up. Salon, for instance, or others. Salon, because of the editor, will actually run a lot of my stuff to his credit. But it's just it's not commercially sustainable. That's the problem. And in the end, writers have to pay the rent like anyone else. Alternative media has always served as a kind of corrective to commercial media. That's what Ramparts did. I mean, Ramparts under Bob Shear published that iconic photo of the little girl running down the road in Vietnam being burned by napalm. He did COINTELPRO. He, I think that's what Julian Assange has done. So WikiLeaks publishes this stuff. And all the papers, El Pais, The Guardian, New York Times, Der Spiegel, they all publish it. But I know because I work there, they hate, they hated, always hated Julian because he shamed them into doing their job. If they didn't publish it, they would be exposed for who they were, which are essentially organs of the power elite. And that's why as soon as the stuff was published, they went for him. And I'm a huge supporter of Julian. And you went to his wedding recently. Uh, almost, we, we, almost went to his almost. wedding. Almost. There were six of us who were invited, but we didn't get in, of course, but I wasn't surprised. I mean, here's a, a person who's he's not. I mean, this is just it's judicial farce. But the media organizations that published his material have largely abandoned him. What do you think is going on in the culture there? Because for a while you were on RT, which is Russia Television or Russia Today. I'm not sure the actual name. And then you quit when Putin announced. No, I didn't quit. They shut it down. Oh, no, sorry. You wrote a very critical comment. Yeah, column. I denounced it as a war you denounced crime. The war. Which, but, but now I don't think I would have lasted too long. But it was shut down six days later. So, so it was shut down. All your archives from the shows on and YouTube, interviews were also, gone. YouTube disappeared six years of shows. So what's going on in the culture? Well, it's Neil Postman. I mean, we're just amusing ourselves to death. In particular, I want to bring it back to the sort of attitude towards free speech. There's... Even among the left, there is skepticism of Julian Assange. Even among the left, there's support for nixing RT when uh, war in Ukraine started, with, when Putin invaded. And even among the left, there is calls for uh, stringent content moderation, you know, be careful who gets a platform, those kinds of things. Why do you think that's happening? Well, they're embracing censorship, let's be clear. And we know from history that in the end, when authorities begin to censor, it's the left who gets hit the hardest. 
So I was against removing Trump from social media. That's because you didn't have to live on Twitter. Well, I don't think anyone should live on Twitter. I don't think it's good for your mental health. Um, <laughs> and I said, I was on Amy Goodman's show, I said, look, you know, they start with Trump. Well, a few weeks later, my entire archive shows are gone. I didn't. So the, the problem is that we've reconfigured the society into this terrible corporate Sheldon Wolin, the political philosopher, calls it inverted totalitarianism. The institutions that should serve the public have completely seized up and don't work. We funnel half of all discretionary spending to the war industry. Uh, we're the most watched, monitored, photographed, eavesdropped population in human history, and I covered the Stasi state in East Germany. And, and it's a bipartisan consensus. So is this, is this the sort of thing where, you, in your view, you could change the administration and these things start to get better? Is there, a, like, is there a vision for hope that you have in your mind? Hope. I don't share America's mania for hope. No, I'm pretty pessimistic. I mean, I read the climate reports. I, I just don't, I'm not just going to take it lying down. I mean, you know, I'm a father. Uh, I, I may fail, but I at least want my children to say I tried. But every once in a while, you do get lucky. You do strike a blow. But I just don't think that it's good for our mental health to be supine. Uh, I think we have to resist, and we can't really use the word hope if we don't. But that requires a very accurate and cold reading of the structures of power, and power spends a lot of money to spin us. What do you make of the techno-optimists who say we can go multiplanetary, we can create a, a glorious future of abundance, if only, if only, if only? Not much. You mean the Elon Musks? Those guys, no. We only have one planet and one ecosystem, and we're doing a pretty good job of taking it down. So, no, I'm not terribly optimistic, but I, I think that, in fact, that's a kind of prophylactic and that I'm not disappointed. And, and you know, America culture exists on kind of short-term highs and lows. That's kind of what consumer society does to you. And I see so often in the left that, that they have unrealistic expectations, and then when they're not met, they kind of give up and they can retreat. I think that's the great failure of the left. And the other failures, they have no real contact with the oppressed. They, it's an abstraction to them. Okay. I'm just going to pivot a little bit. I don't want to make this an ad for Substack, but I'm interested in what your life has been like, well, how Substack's, your life has changed. Substack, it hasn't changed. I mean, in that I'm still writing and doing what I did before. So I lost RT. And so I lost the income that I had from RT. And because alternative media just doesn't have money, I went on Matt Taibbi's urging to Substack, and it, it brings in the money that allows me to continue to write my column, which I don't put behind a paywall. So Bob Shear runs it every Monday, but obviously I don't charge him, not that he has much money to pay anyway. And then I reconstituted the show that I had on Telesur and had on RT through the Real News in Baltimore, but again, in, it's Substack subscribers that pay for it. So it allows me to continue to do my work. I don't really want to be a minister in a small church, so it's really been a godsend for me. Do you have any uh, Substack recommendations for us? Any particular article? There's uh, a few writers I like. I, uh, of course, Matt and and Glenn. I think Matt Tybee, Matt Glenn, Tybee Green, and Glenn Greenwald. Greenwald. Uh, Paul Street just came on Substack. I like his stuff. Jonathan Cook, who a lot of writers in America don't know about, mm. he's very good. Who's he? He's a British writer, and he spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Uh, he lived in Palestine and just fearless reporting on the Palestinians. But he's just wise. He's now based in the UK. 
Uh, but he's several articles I like. One of them was the murder of the Palestinian journalist, Shireen Abu Akhla. Right. And I have been in situations where Israeli soldiers have fired at us. I also understand, especially if it's a sniper, you see, can see the face of the person through a scope. It's not. And she was shot between her helmet and the collar of her flak jacket. So that's a very small space to hit. Um, so he wrote a column called Shireen Abu Akhla was executed to send a message to Palestinians and he, he gets it, and, he, and he's fearless. He, he'll say it. I also wanted to ask you about how you met your wife, Eunice Wong. She's a Canadian actress, I believe. And What's right. the story there? So I was giving a talk. She was starring in Antigone in New York City, and the director gave to the actors, had photocopied passages from the end of my book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, because I visit the grave of my close friend, Kurt Shork, who was buried in Sarajevo and uh, actually recited a Catullus poem over his grave uh, that Catullus had gone to Troy, his brother had died, and, which I might remember. By strangers' coasts and waters, many days at sea, I come here for the rites of your unworlding, bringing for you the dead these last gifts of the living, vain sounds for the man of dust. Alas, my brother, you have been taken from me, taken from me, and by cold chance turned a shadow and my pain. Here are the foods of the old ceremony, appointed long ago for the starvelings under the earth. Take them, your brother's tears have made them wet, and take into eternity my hail and my farewell. And of course, in Antigone, the play, she wants to bury her brother. And some, one of the other actors said, well, he's giving a talk on his book, and she showed up. That's how we met. And the rest is history. And, you know, she's literate, so we started meeting, and I gave her Proust. I love Proust. I read all of Proust in the war in Bosnia. Nobody reads Proust. And she read the first volume. I thought, wow. Then she read the second volume, and we would meet before her shows. It was a very kind of 19th century romance, and talk about Proust. And I said... She reads Proust, we got to get married. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> She's also gorgeous. <laughs> Some high uh, recommending qualities there. Yeah, I, you should read this guy, Justin E.H. Smith, or meet him. He's, he lives in Paris, but he, he's a Proust scholar. He's oh. read all the volumes. He writes, he's writes these incredibly long essays about culture, and he's suffusing them with Proust all the way along. Oh. So uh, I think you'd find him really interesting. Oh, yeah, and He'd for sure. find you very interesting. Chris Hedges, thanks so much for coming to speak to us. Thanks for being on this yeah. podcast. And, oh, thanks, Amish. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have yeah, you here. thanks. You can find Chris Hedges on Substack at chrishedges.substack.com. See you next week. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.